Greetings and welcome to the Quintessence Tournament of Champions. Remember, participation is involuntary and if any of you were perceived as violating the rules, then we will have to feed you to the Sharkacons and the Alicons. So with that said, let's get this show on the road. Greetings and welcome back to Checkpoint Gaming Transformers. When it comes to tournaments, we will go over the information that we needed to run a Transformers TCG tournament. This includes defining the appropriate rules, responsibilities, and procedures that were to be followed during a tournament. These were to be run consistently, regardless of their location. And though the game has been cancelled as of the recording of this episode, thus preventing them from being official or sanctioned, we are still providing this information for those who wish to play within the rules that were officially set up. All players were to be treated equally. This should be true even outside of the tournament. They also shared responsibilities. Both players and tournament officials cooperated to achieve a common goal of running a proper tournament. With players and tournament officials, they had to treat each other in a fair and respectful manner, following the rules and the spirit for which they were created. They were responsible for following the last updated version of the tournament rules as well as any other flexible regulatory documents including the game rules. With spectators, they had their own set of responsibilities. For individuals who violated the tournament rules, they were subject to the appropriate penalties. With the information pertaining to a tournament, they may contradict what they might not have been otherwise contained in the Transformers TCG game rules. In this situation, the tournament rules would have taken precedence. With tournament fact sheets for specific tournaments, they might have defined alternative and additional policies or procedures. If a contradiction existed between the formal rules and the fact sheets, then the information presented on the fact sheet would have taken precedence. Wizards of the Coast also reserved the right to alter these rules as well as to interpret, modify, clarify, or otherwise issue official changes to these rules without prior notice. Further updates were scheduled for the Monday before the set release with each update becoming effective upon the release of said new set. With sanctioned tournament types, they are divided into two types, Premier and Non-Premier. With Premier tournaments, they were run by Wizards of the Coast or selected tournament organizers which had unique names and features. With Non-Premier tournaments, they were tournaments that were not explicitly Premier. When the game was active, Wizards of the Coast reserved the right to publish officially sanctioned tournament information at any time, including the tournament itself. This information is consisted of, but not limited to, the contents of one or more players' decks, descriptions of strategies or play, and video reproductions. It also reserved the right to publish penalty and suspension information. Tournament organizers were also allowed to publish information once their tournament was over. With the tournament role, they consisted of tournament organizer, head judge, floor judge, scorekeeper, player, and spectator. With the first four roles, they consisted of the tournament officials. With the head judge and the floor judge, they were collectively known as judges. It was possible for a single individual to have taken any combination of tournament official roles. With the individuals who were not judges of a tournament were considered to be spectators in any match they were not playing in. Members of the press were also considered spectators. With participation eligibility, someone could play in an officially sanctioned tournament with a few exceptions. First, anyone who was suspended by Wizards of the Coast were not eligible. Anyone who was suspended also could not have acted as a tournament official. Any other individual who was specifically prohibited from participation by Wizards of the Coast policy also could not participate. With participants, they had to have been at least 13 years old or older in order to play without a parent or guardian's permission. If the person was 12 years old or younger, then a parent or guardian's permission was needed. Finally, anyone prohibited by federal, state, or local laws, rules of the tournament organizers, or by the venue's management were not allowed to participate. Employees of Wizard of the Coast and Hadbro could have participated in a competitive event with a few exceptions. They could not have played in an event that took place within one week of a new booster set's release, part of or led to a premier event, a third-party premier play-like event, or the prices exceeded $250. US For the team members of Wizards, they were required to introduce themselves to the tournament organizers before signing up for an event. Tournament organizers had the right to deny admins of said team members for any reason. In regards to tournament officials, anyone was eligible for a tournament with the following exceptions. 
First, if the individual is currently suspended by wizards of the coast. Second, anyone who has played in the tournament unless the tournament explicitly allowed tournament officials to play while acting as a tournament official. Tournament officials were also allowed to play in stakes and tournaments for which they were a tournament official if and only if the tournament was, was of the following event types. One, there was a set premiere release date event. Second, there was another non-premier tournament that would not grant an invitation to a premier tournament. Third, a tournament where the official tournament fact sheet specifically permitted officials of the tournament to play. If one or more tournament officials played in a tournament, the tournament was not one of the allowed event types touched upon earlier, then the tournament was invalidated. Tournament officials were required to officiate tournaments fairly and without regard to their own self-interest. Organization owners that ran premier tournaments were not allowed to play in those tournaments. With premier tournaments, they consisted of TCG Opens and TCG Invitationals. For some tournaments, they had additional criteria regarding players and tournament official eligibility. With the premier invitational policies, they defined specific eligibility rules with certain types of invitational-only premier tournaments. When participating in organized play, the tournament participant had to give their organized play account number to the scorekeeper at registration. If they did not have such an account number, then one will have to be requested from the tournament organizer. The annual cost for members were only allowed to have one such account number. With the result that contained temporary player numbers, temporary player names, or placeholders, they could not be reported to Wizards of the Coast. For players who were 12 years old or younger, they required a parental consent form. With the tournament organizers, they were responsible for all the logistics surrounding this set. This included the following six steps. 1. Secure a sanctioning number from Wizards of the Coast. 2. Provide a site for the tournament that met the expected needs of the tournament. 3. Advertise the tournament prior to the tournament date. 4. Staffing the tournament with the appropriate tournament officials. 5. Providing all necessary material to operate the tournament. And 6. Reporting the tournament result to Wizards of the Coast. With any sanctioned tournament, it required the physical presence of a head judge during play. They adjudicated disputes, interpreted rules, and made official decisions. They were also the final authority of any official sanctioned tournament, and all tournament participants had to follow their instructions. With the responsibilities of the head judge, they included the following. 1. Ensuring that all necessary steps were taken to deal with the game or policy rule violations that they noted or were brought to their attention. 2nd. Issue the final ruling in app appeals, even if it overturned the ruling of a floor judge. 3. Coordinating and delegating tasks to the floor judges as needed. And 4. Temporarily transfer their duties to any judge if they were unable to fulfill them for a period of time when necessary. In exceptional circumstances, if the tournament's integrity would have been damaged, the tournament organizer could have replaced the head judge. With the responsibilities of the floor judge, they included the following. 1. Being available to answer questions players and directors might have had. 2. Dealt with the legal plays. And 3. Assisted with reasonable requests. Although they didn't generally assist players in determining the current game state, they could always answer questions about the rules as well as card interactions. Four judges could have assisted players in understanding the game state in the interest of education. If they asked a question away from the table, the request would have usually been honored. Although players could not have requested specific judge to answer the call, they could have requested a tournament official to help translate. This request could have been honored, but this is at the discretion of the original judge. Although judges could not have intervened in the game to prevent an illegal action, they could have intervened as soon as the rule had been broken or to prevent an escalating situation. With the responsibilities of the scorekeeper, they included the following. 1. Ensure the correct generation of pairings for each round and all other tournament records throughout the tournament. 2. Accurately enter the result of each round. 3. Solve all scorekeeping problems that arose in consultation with the head judge. And 4. Refer to the head judge in determining any corrective actions for scorekeeping errors. With the responsibilities of the players, they included the following. 1. To behave in a respectful manner towards the officials, other participants, and the spectators. This included refraining from engaging in unsportsmanlike conduct, which is always important. 2. Maintain a clean and legal game state. 3. Comply with announced start time and time limits. 
Four, bring to the attention of a judge any rule or policy infraction that was noticed as well as errors in the tournament match records. Five, inform Wizards of the Coast of any error that existed in their overall match history or ranking as soon as possible by contacting their service center. Six, have an organized play account number. Any individuals with more than one number have to inform Wizards of the Coast in order to merge the numbers. Seven, refrain from enrolling in the tournament of the policies forbade participation. Eight, being familiar with the rules found within any regulatory document including the game rule. And nine, been physically present for the tournament. In order for a player to have participated in the tournament, they needed to bring the following. One, valid organized play account number that was registered to the participating player. A new player could have obtained an account number when enrolling for a tournament. Two, any material specifically required for participating in a tournament format. Three, retain their responsibilities even if the judge provided them with extra assistance. And four, failure to fulfill the responsibilities have resulted in penalties and review. Residents of the coast reserve the right to suspend or revoke a player's membership for any reason if they deemed necessary and without notice. With the responsibilities of the spectators, they included the following. One, remain silent and not interfere in matches and other official tournament sections. If they believe that they have observed a rule or policy violation, spectators were encouraged to inform a judge as soon as possible. Spectators were allowed to ask the players to pause the match while they alerted a judge. And two, vacating an area and or not observing a match when instructed to do so by a judge. Players could have also requested that a spectator not observe a match by informing the judge. Tournament officials could simply instruct a spectator to not observe a match or matches. With the mechanics of a tournament, they were always followed. With a match, it consisted of a series of games that were played until one player has won two games. With a draw, it did not count toward this goal. If a round ended before a player won two games, then the winner of the match was the player who won the most games up to that point. But if both players had an equal number of wins, then the match was a draw. With the first game in the match, the winner of a random method would choose if they would go first or second. With each subsequent game in the match, the loser would decide if they would go first or second. If the previous game was a draw, then the player who chose at the beginning of the drawn game would have chosen again. Before each game began, the following steps were to be performed in a timely manner. First, each player would place their team on the battlefield in alt mode unless the card's flavor text stated otherwise, including if it started in the KO area. Second, determine who played first in accordance with the starting player rule. Third, perform any before the game begins actions. Fourth, each player shuffled their deck. Fifth, players may shuffle their opponent's deck. With the pre-game procedures, they could have been performed before time for the match had officially begun. The game is considered to have officially begun when the first player drew a card in the beginning of their turn. If a game or match was not completed, a player could have chosen to concede or both players agreed to a draw for that game or match. To have a match considered completed, have the results have filled out or if match slips were not being used, a player left the table after the game had been finished. Players could not agree to a concession or draw in exchange for any reward or an incentive. Doing so would be considered bribery. If a player refused to play, then it was assumed that said player had conceded the match. If the match time limit had been reached before the winner had been determined, the player whose turn it was would finish their turn and the opposing player would have gotten one additional turn. If the game remained incomplete after this additional turn, then the game was determined to be a draw. If a judge assigned a time extension for one reason or another, the end of match procedure would not begin until the end of the time extension. With single elimination rounds, matches would not have ended in a draw. At the end of the additional turn, if both players had won an equal number of games, count the amount of damage counters found on their respective characters. This included any current damage from the characters found on the battlefield and full damage for the characters found in the KO area. The player with the least amount of character damage would have won the match. If there was an equal amount of damage, then each player would flip the top two cards from their deck. And the player who flipped the most orange battle icons would have been deemed the winner. 
If a tie still occurred, they continued to flip two cards from the top of their respective deck until the tie was broken. If the deck needed to be shuffled, they shuffled the cards from the scrap pile and those flipped during the tie breaking process. But if this procedure did not break the tie, then flip a coin to determine the winner. In situations where a judge had to pause the match for more than one minute while the round clock was still running, then the judge would extend that match time accordingly. If the match was interrupted in order to perform a deck check, then the players were awarded time equal to the time the deck check took plus three minutes. With some tournaments, players were required to register their deck. With tournaments that required deck registration, they would be identified in their respective tournament fact sheet or would be announced by the tournament organizer prior to the start of the tournament. With registered deck lists, they showed the composition of each deck and once it had been accepted by the tournament official, it could not be altered. Players could request to see their deck list, but they had to be done between matches, not between games of a match. Such requests would be honored if logistically possible. Generally speaking, deck lists were not public information and were not to be shared with other players during the tournament. With deck checks, they could have been performed at any tournament at the option of the head judge. With a deck check, they compared the deck registration list against the current contents of the player's deck. If they did not match, then appropriate penalties could have been issued. With deck lists, they were required for TCG Opens and TCG Invitationals. They could also be required at the direction of tournament organizers. In situations where a player disagreed with the judge's ruling, then they could have appealed the ruling to the head judge. However, this could not be done until the full ruling had been made by the responding floor judge. With unusual circumstances, the head judge could have appointed another judge as a proxy to issue a second ruling. However, players still retained the right to appeal to the head judge. With players who chose to drop out of a tournament, they had to inform the scorekeeper by the means provided for that tournament before the pairings were made for the next round was generated. Players that wanted to drop out after the scorekeeper began the pairing process for the next round, they could be paired for that round. If a player did not show up for their assigned match, then they would have been automatically dropped from the tournament unless they reported to the scorekeeper. Players that repeatedly and or intentionally dropped from a tournament without informing the scorekeeper could have been subject to penalties up to and including suspensions. If a player dropped from a tournament after a cut had been made, no other player was advanced as a replacement. Instead, the player's opponent received a buy for that round. A cut was considered to have been made once the cut itself preparing for a round following the cut had been posted or announced. With players who drop may re-enter the tournament, but at the discretion of the head judge. But if a cut had been made, players could not re-enter a tournament. Players could not drop from a tournament in exchange for or influenced by the offer of any reward or incentive. Doing so was considered bribery. Players were allowed to take written notes during the match and refer to them while the match progressed. At the beginning of the match, the note sheet had to be empty and remain visible throughout the match. Players did not have to explain or reveal their note to any other player. However, judges could ask to see a player's notes and or request an explanation of these notes. Players could not have referred to other notes, including those from previous matches during the games. When between games, players could have referred to a brief set of notes that were made before the match. Notes were not required to be revealed to their opponents. They also had to be removed from the play area before the beginning of the next game. With players that took too long reviewing their notes, they could have been subject to slow play penalties. In regards to artistic modifications that were made to cards, if they indirectly provided minor strategic information, they were acceptable. But the head judge was the final arbitrator of what cards and notes would have been acceptable for a tournament. With the electronic devices, they could have been used to track and review notes as well as to briefly answer personal calls that were not related to the game. However, the electronic devices could not have been used to access outside strategic sources or communicate with others in order to obtain outside assistance. Players that took an excessive amount of time using an electronic device could have been subject to slow play penalties. In order for a player to view information privately on an electronic device during a match, permission had to be granted from a judge. 
a head judge could have restricted or forbidden the use of electronic devices during the match. The use of official Transformers TCG companion app was permitted as long as it was used for damage or health tracking. In regards to video coverage, players were allowed to decline to appear on camera. With video commentators, they were considered spectators for purposes of a tournament. However, they could talk during the match as long as they were out of airshot of the players they were covering. They were also responsible for behaving in a respectful manner to all tournament participants during coverage. Spectators were also allowed to record matches, but to do so, they had to be unobtrusive. Due to delays that were inherent with video replays, judges were not allowed to use it to assist in making a ruling during the match. When used, video recordings could have been used for investigative purposes performed at a later time. When it comes to the player's rank in the tournament, the following rules were to be used for tiebreakers. These consisted of match points, opponent's match win percentage, game win percentage, and opponent's game win percentage. With match points, players earned 3 points for every match won, 0 points for every match lost, and 1 point for each match that ended in a draw. With players who received a bye were considered to have won their match. With game points, they were similar to match points in that players earned 3 points for every game won, 0 points for every match lost, and 1 point for every match that ended in a draw. With unfinished games, they were considered draws. With unplayed games, they were worth 0 points. With the player's match win percentage, it was the player's accumulated match points divided by the total possible match points in those rounds. If this number was lower than 0.33, then use 0.33 instead. With the minimum match win percentage of 0.33, it limited the effect low percentages would have had when calculating and comparing the points match win percentage. Like the match win percentage, a player's game win percentage was the total number of game points that a player earned divided by the total possible game points. Again, use 0.33 if the actual game win percentage was lower than 0.33. With the player's opponent's match win percentage, it was the average match win percentage of each opponent that they faced, ignoring the rounds where the player received a buy. Use the match win percentage definition when calculating each individual opponent's match win percentage. Like the opponent's match win percentage, the player's opponent's game win percentage was similar to the average game win percentage of all of the player's opponents. And like an opponent's match win percentage, each opponent had a minimum game win percentage of 0.33. With bias, when a player assigned it for a round, they were considered to have won the match 2-0. So the player got 3 match points and 6 game points. A player's buys were ignored when computing their opponent's match win and opponent's game win percentage. With the formats and rating calculations for the game, Wizards of the Coast sanctioned the following formats, Constructed and Limited. With the Constructed format, it only had one category, which was Constructed. With the Limited format, it had three categories, Sealed Deck, Booster Draft, and Turbo. They also maintained a rating category in the form of the Lifetime Rating. With the Lifetime Rating system, it combined tournaments, Opens, and Invitationals. For each of these tournaments, players would have earned specific points per match. For winning a match, they earned three points. In the event of a draw, each player earned 1 point. For losing a match, they earned 0 points. With the use of authorized game cards, all Transformers TCG products and promotional printings could have been used. With authorized game cards, when unaltered, were cards that met the following conditions. First, they were genuine and were published by Wizards of the Coast. Second, battle cards had the standard Transformers TCG back. Third, they were not damaged or modified in a way that could have been perceived as being marked. Fourth, they were otherwise legal for the tournaments as defined by the format. And fifth, a card was a proxy issued by the head judge of the tournament. With any card that was not authorized game cards, they were prohibited in all sanctioned tournaments. Players could have used otherwise legal non-English and or misprinted cards provided that they did not provide an advantage through misleading text, arts, or other features.
In regards to autistic modifications, they were accessible in stakes and tournaments provided that the modifications did not make card art unrecognizable, contain substantial strategic advice, or contain offensive imagery. Such autistic modifications also could not have obstructed or changed numerical stats, stars, or name of the card. At the end of the day, the head judge was the final authority on acceptable cards for tournaments. With proxy cards, they were used during competition in order to represent an authentic game card that had been accidentally damaged or excessively worn in the current tournament as determined by the head judge. However, proxy cards were not allowed to substitute cards that the owner had intensely damaged or damaged through neglect. With proxy cards, players could not have created their own. Only the head judge could have created proxy cards. When the judge created a proxy card, it was to be included in the player's deck and had to be denoted as a proxy card in a clear, concise, and conspicuous manner. The original card was also to be kept close during the match and replace the proxy card while the proxy card was in a public zone as long as it was recognizable. The proxy card was also valid for the duration of the tournament where it was originally issued. With new releases, cards became tournament legal for sanctioned tournaments the day of their release. This also extended to all promotional cards for they became tournament legal the day of their release. With the player's deck, they had to be randomized at the start of every game as well as whenever an instruction required it. With randomization, it was defined as bringing the deck to a state where no player could have any information regarding the order or position of the card in any portion of the deck. Pile shuffling alone was deemed insufficient to randomize the deck. Once randomized, the deck was to be presented to the opponent who could have provided additional shuffling. During this process, cards and staves could not have been in danger of being damaged. If a player did not believe that their opponent made a reasonable effort to randomize their deck, they could have notified a judge. Players could have requested a judge to shuffle the cards of their opponent and this request would have been honored but only at the judge's discretion. If a player had the opportunity to see any of the cards faces while the deck was being shuffled, then the deck was no longer considered randomized and would have been randomized again. Players were given the opportunity to use plastic card sleeves or other protective devices on their cards. If using card sleeves, all sleeves had to be identical and all cards in their deck had to be placed in the sleeves in an identical manner. If the sleeves featured a hologram or other similar marking, the cards had to be inserted into the sleeves so that the markings only appeared on the card's face. Accessories could have also been used as a means of identifying which face of a triple face card was active, but this accessory could not have been misleading to others. Judges could have also required that the players cease using such accessories. During a match, players could have requested that a judge inspect an opponent's card sleeves or accessories. If the judge believed that the sleeves and or accessories were marked, worn, or otherwise in the condition or a design that interfered with the shuffling process or gameplay, they could have been disallowed. For the sake of efficiency, the judge could choose to delay any change of sleeves or accessories until the end of the match. With the premier tournaments, they imposed additional restrictions regarding sleeves and accessories. If the sleeves had highly reflective backs or possessed hologram patterns across some or all the sleeves, either front or back, they were not allowed. If sleeves had artwork on their back, they could have been subject to additional scrutiny, especially if they did not have a solid border around the edges. If sleeves were used on double or triple face cards, they had to be completely transparent. If hard sleeve top loaders were used to protect character cards, they had to be transparent on both sides. The head judge could have final authority on what sleeves were allowed to be used. With marked cards, a card or sleeve was considered to be marked if, if it was possible to identify the card without seeing its face due to markings, including scratches or discoloration. If in a sleeve, the card had to be examined within the sleeve to determine if it was marked. 
It was the responsibility of the player to ensure that their cards and or sleeves were not marked during the course of the tournament. When sleeving their cards, players should have used care as well as randomizing their decks prior to sleeving them. That way, it would have reduced the possibility of the cards becoming marked in a pattern. It was possible during the course of a tournament, a player's cards or sleeves could have become worn and potentially marked. The head judge also had the authority to determine if a card found in the player's deck was marked. Judges could have also requested that the player remove their current sleeves or to replace any of the deck's current sleeves immediately or before the next round. If a player was required to replace a card in their deck and the player was unable to find a replacement, then the head judge would have issued said player a proxy card. With hidden information, it referred to information that a player was not allowed to access. Throughout the match and the pre-game procedures, players were responsible for keeping their cards above the level of the play area as well as making a reasonable effort to prevent hidden information from becoming revealed. Unless specifically prohibited by the rules, players could have chosen to reveal their hand or any other hidden information available only to them. Players could not have actively tried and gained information that was hidden from them. In regards to a card being tapped, it had to be clearly turned approximately 90 degrees. Like real life, communication between players was important to a successful play of a game that involved hidden information. Although bluffing was an aspect of gameplay, there needed to be clear parameters on what was and was not acceptable for players to see or represent. Officials and highly competitive players should know the difference between bluffing and fraud. This would confirm expectations of both sporting and competitive players during a game. With Wizards of the Coast, I believe that a player should have an advantage due to a better understanding of their game rules, greater awareness of the interactions in the current game state, and superior tactical planning. Players were also not obligated to assist their opponent during play. Regardless of anything else, players would treat their opponents lightly and with respect. Failure to do so could have led to unsporting conduct penalties. With the information categories, it consisted of free, derived, and private. With free information, it consisted of information that all players were entitled to access without contamination or omission made by their opponents. If a player was ever unable or unwilling to provide free information to an opponent that requested it, they should call over a judge and explain the situation. With free information, it consisted of the following. 1. Details of the current game actions and past game actions that were still in effect. 2. The name of any visible cards. 3. The current state of any card and if that card was tapped. 4. The current part of the turn. and 5. The character orientation and the KO area. With derived information, it consisted of information that all players were entitled to access, but the opponent was not obligated to assist in determining and could require some skill or calculation to determine. With derived information, it consisted of the following. 1. The current power, abilities, or other relevant information found on a card. And 2. Game rules, tournament policies, and official information that pertain to the current tournament. With private information, it consisted of information that players only had access if they were able to determine it from the current visual game, visual game state, or their own record of previous game actions. Any information that was not free or derived, it was automatically classified as private information. Regarding player communication, the following rules were used. 1. Players had to answer all questions asked of them by a judge completely and honestly, regardless of the type of information that was requested. Players were allowed to request to do this away from the match. 2. Players could not incorrectly represent free or derived information. 3. Players had to answer completely and honestly any specific questions that pertain to free information. Although judges were encouraged to help players in determining free information, they had to avoid assisting players with derived information about the game state. Due to the complexity of accurately representing a game of Transformers TCG, it was acceptable for players to engage in a block of actions that, while technically not in the correct order, led to a legal and clearly understood game state once it was completed. All actions had to be legal if they were executed in the correct order.
In regards to the character's taft abilities, players were expected to remember their own abilities with intentionally ignoring them, counting as cheating. Although it was not required to point out the existence of a triggered ability on the opponent's card, it could have been done so within a turn if they wished to do so. Once a player had taken an action past the point where the triggered ability would have had an observable impact on the game, the triggered ability was considered to have been forgotten, with the revealing of secret actions while on the play area was optional. If additional game actions occurred after the event where the secret action had been revealed, the secret action would be considered to have been elected to not have been revealed. If the secret action was in play, a reasonable amount of time should have been given to reveal it. As with any organized play, there are rules in place to govern its participants, and with the presence of any rule system, violations could occur. With the Transformers TCG tournament, it had six types of violations present which are described here. First, we had cheating, which was not tolerated. The head judge would review all cheating allegations, and if they believed that the player had cheated, the appropriate penalty would have been issued based upon infraction procedure guide. All those qualifications were subject to review and further penalties could be assessed. Second, we had collusion and bribery. With the decision to drop out, concede, or agree to an intentional draw could not be done in exchange for or be influenced by an offer of any kind of reward or incentive. Making such an offer was prohibited. Unless the player who received such an offer immediately notified a judge, both players would have been penalized in the same manner. Players were allowed to share prizes not yet received in the current tournament if they see fit and could have agreed to do so before or during their match. They just could not engage in such sharing in exchange for any game or match results or have a player drop out from the tournament. An exception to this rule was when players in the announced last round of a single elimination portion of a tournament could agree to divide the tournament prizes as they wished. In that case, one player at each table would have had agreed to draw from the tournament to the players then being awarded prizes according to the resulting ranking. This agreement could never include a concession or intentional draw. With the result of any given match or game, it could have only been determined through the normal process of the game in play. A random or arbitrary means of determining the outcome was not allowed. Players also could not have reached an agreement in conjunction with any other matches. Although they could have made use of information regarding match or game scores from other tables, players were not allowed to leave their seat during the match to obtain said information. In single elimination rounds, a tournament that only offered cash and or unopened product with the tournament organizer's permission, players could have agreed to split their prizes evenly. The players could have chosen to end the tournament at this point or could have chosen to continue to play. For this to occur, all players in the tournament had to agree to this arrangement. Third, participants, tournament officials, and spectators could not have wagered, anteed, or bet on any portion, including the outcome of the tournament match or game. Fourth, we had unsportsmanlike conduct, which was not tolerated at any time. During the tournament, participants had to have behaved in a polite and respectful manner. With unsportsmanlike conduct, included but was not limited to the use of profanity, acted in a threatening manner, argued with, acted belligerently toward, or harassed tournament officials, players, or spectators, and failed to follow instructions of a tournament official. With all incidents of unsportsmanlike conduct, they were subject to further review. Fifth, we had slow play that required players to take their turn in a timely fashion regardless of the complexity of the play situation and adhere to the time limits that had been specified for the tournament. So players had to maintain a pace that allowed the match to be finished within the announced time frame. This meant that stalling was not acceptable. Players could ask a judge to watch their game for slow play. With such a request, it would be granted if it was feasible. Sixth, we had the extra turn rule which required the players not to take more than two turns in a row under any circumstances. Any additional turns beyond two consecutive turns were to be skipped and could not be deferred or saved for the future. With constructing a deck, it had to consist of a minimum of 40 cards with no maximum deck size. A deck could not contain more than three copies of the same individual card based upon its English name. Players also could not use more than one character card that bear the same complete card name. This consisted of the character's name and sub-name. The player's character cards and deck could not have more than 25 total stars. 
with a given card, it could only be used in a particular format if the card was from a legal set in that format or had the same name as the card from a legal set in that format. With cards that were banned for a given format, they could not have been used in a deck for that given format. With the card sets that were permitted in a constructed tournament, consider Wave 1 Booster Pack, Convention Pack 2018, Autobot Starter Set, Metroplex Deck, Convention Edition 2018, Wave 2 Rise of the Combiners, Devastator Deck, Bumblebee vs Megatron Starter Deck, Wave 3 War for Cybertron Siege 1, Convention Pack 2019, Blaster vs Soundwave 35th Anniversary Edition, Blaster vs Soundwave Retail Edition, Wave 4 War for Cybertron Siege 2, Wave 1 Energon Edition Character and Battle Cards, and Wave 5 Titan Masters Attack. With promo cards, mechanically unique cards were minted in constructed tournaments on or after the date they were released. But with promo cards that had alternative art, they were considered as copies of the originally printed card. With Arcana, Bumblebee, Electron Warrior, Convex, Nightbird, Energetic Agent, Omega Supreme, Autobot Defense Base, Procedure, Precise Sniper, Private Smashdown, Tidal Wave, Dark Fleet, Aircraft Carrier, Tidal Wave, Dark Fleet Battleship, and Tidal Wave, Dark Fleet Transport, they were mechanically unique. With Bumblebee, Trusted Lieutenant, Flame War, Veteran Decepticon, Private Red Alert, Medic, Raider Roadhugger, Infantry, Tactics, Raider Runabout, Infantry, Soldier, and Raider Runama, Infantry, Soldier, they all had gold foil variants, and though they were not mechanically unique, they were still permitted. This also extended to all-out attack and tandem targeting system which had Energon Edition foil variants. Before Transformers TCG was cancelled, there were a few officially banned cards from play in constructed tournaments and they all consisted of battle cards. With these cards, they were swap parts, press the advantage, and multi-mission gear. In regards to sideboard rules, if there could have had a sideboard that consisted of one character of 25 stars or less and up to 10 battle cards. With the characters, duplicates were not allowed between the player's team and sideboard. With battle cards, no more than three copies of each were allowed between the player's deck and sideboard. After sideboarding, the deck had to remain legal. After each game found in the match, the player who won the game got to decide first if they wanted to swap out characters from their sideboard. If so, they would swap out the character or characters and declare their team. From there, the player who lost the game had a chance to do the same. Then both players got the chance to swap out battle cards simultaneously. When swapping out battle cards, players were not required to reveal how many battle cards were swapped. They did not even have to swap one for one. However, the sideboard could not have exceeded the maximum sideboard size. With deciding who would go first or second in relation to sideboarding, the tournament organizer would have needed to decide if the player who lost in the previous game would go first or second before players engaged in sideboarding. If failing to do this, the head judge needed to decide. But without a formal decision, assume that whoever is going first or second was done before sideboarding occurred, though it could also have been done through player agreements. There were times when a card read a card from outside the game. With these cards, they had to be in possession of the player at the beginning of the match and they had to be legal within the event format. With these cards from outside the game, they had to be in the player's sideboard at the time of using this effect. Any card that was from outside the game did not count as part of the player's team, deck, or sideboard. But they had to be referenced by other cards that were part of the player's team, deck, or sideboard. At the end of each game, any cards that were from outside the game and introduced during play had to be removed from the player's team, deck, and sideboard. With limited format games, deck construction had some limitations. The deck had to contain a minimum of 25 battle cards and the star count, character cards, and deck could not have exceeded 25 stars. The maximum deck size was every card that was found in the player's card pool. And unlike constructed decks, limited decks could contain more than 3 cards of any given kind of battle card as well as more than one of any character card as long as they were found within the player's card pool. In a limited tournament, the card pool consisted of the characters and battle cards that they opened or drafted. 
Those that participated in limited tournaments could have freely chosen their deck composition between matches, but not between games, by exchanging cards from their deck for other cards in their pool and do so without needing to return the deck to its original composition before the next match. They just needed to ensure that their deck had at least 25 battle cards after making their modifications. Players could have also used the rules used for the Energon Invitational where players needed to return the registered configuration prior to Game 1 of any match while being allowed to sideboard cards during Games 2 and 3. With recommended booster mix for limited tournaments, when it came to War for Salvatron Siege 1, it was 6 per player with sealed decks and 5 per player for booster draft. With the cards used in this tournament, they had to be directly received from tournament officials with the product being new and previously unopened. In premier tournaments, they could have opened boosters in order to stamp them. Each player needed to be given exactly the same quantity as well as all other players who were participating in the tournament. If the tournament organizer allowed players to provide their own product, then said product had to be pulled with the rest of the product being used for the tournament. From there, they were randomly distributed. Players could only use the cards they received or drafted that were provided by the tournament organizer. In order for a card to be replaced with another version of the same card, permission from the judge was needed. Neither Wizards of the Coast nor the tournament organizers guaranteed any specific card distribution regarding rarities or frequency of any given booster pack. If a player received an unconventional distribution of rarity or frequency in a given booster pack, he does need to have been notified. With the final distribution to either replace or allow the typical product, it was left up to the discretion of the head judge and tournament organizer. With the sealed deck tournament, the head judge could have required the players to perform a deck swap before deck construction. Players could have received an open product and then registered the contents of their deck list. The tournament officials could have then collected the record card pools and redistributed them at random. A player could have randomly received the product they registered. The head judge could have required the player to sort the cards they registered according to some criteria in order to assist the player receiving the pool. When it comes to booster draft tournaments, players would assemble into random draft circles which were known as pods of roughly equal size and the direction of the head judge. Tournament officials could have then distributed identical sets of booster packs to each player. With players found within a pod, they could have only played against other players found within that pod. With non-premier tournaments, the tournament organizer could have elected to left this restriction. However, this had to be announced before the tournament started. Regarding a turbo deck, battle cards that had one or more stars were included. They just did not apply to the cost of your deck while playing turbo. Because of this, they did not affect the amount of damage taken before the game. In regards to communication, players could not do so in any way with or reveal any hidden information to other players during the draft apart from tournament officials. This applied as soon as the draft pod pairings were posted and will last until the players had handed in their deck lists. With booster draft, all players would have had to open and draft the same booster type at the same time. Players would have opened all of their booster packs, set aside battle card packs, and placed all the character cards, including small characters, in the center of the table so that all players could have seen and read them. From there, a player would have chosen at random one of the character cards. Going clockwise around the table, each of the other players would have selected one character card. With the last player to have selected the first character, they started selecting their second character and the drafting process would have moved counterclockwise until every player would have selected two characters. This draft process would have continued in a snaking fashion until all the character cards have been drafted. With all this said, players were not required to play with all the characters they drafted. With selecting available character cards, players could have selected any of them, even if the selection would put the total star count of their characters over 25. With all the characters' cards drafted, then the players would have opened one pack of battle cards. Each player would have needed to ensure that they possessed the appropriate number of battle cards. If the booster pack possessed a small character, they should have 6, but if they did not possess a small character, they should have 7. Players who received an erroneous number of cards should have notified the judge immediately. After a player has chosen one card from their current battle card pack, they pass the remaining cards face down to the player found to the left. This continued until all cards were drafted. 
After removing the card from the pack and placing it atop of their single front face down drafted pile, the player was considered to have selected that card and could not have returned it to the pack. After selecting the ballot card or was in possession of the contents of their current pack, the player should not have revealed the face of their card to the other participants in the draft. They also had to make a reasonable effort to keep the information from the other players. Players were also not permitted to reveal any hidden information of any kind to the other players in the draft regarding their own picks or what they wanted others to pick. During or between ballot card picking at a premier event, players could not have looked at the card they already drafted. In non-premier tournaments, players were allowed to review their drafted cards during or between ballot card picking. If they did this, the player could not have held any other card at the same time. However, the head judge could have disallowed this provided that they announced this before the first draft. Between booster packs, there was a review period when the players could have reviewed their picks. Once the first pack had been drafted and the review period was completed, the players would have opened the next battle card pack and go through the draft process in the same manner with the exception that the direction of drafting was reversed going right instead of left. This drafting process was repeated until all of the cards and all the booster packs were drafted. With players who were unable or unwilling to participate or continue in the drafting process but was to remain in the tournament, they would be suspended from drafting. For the remainder of the draft, a tournament official would have randomly made picks in place of the suspended player. With sanctioned tournaments, they required a minimum of four players. If this participated minimum was not met, the tournament was not considered officially sanctioned and would not have provided any rating points. The tournament organizer should have reported the tournament to Wizard of the Coast as it did not occur. In order for a tournament to be sanctioned, it required at least two rounds. If the minimum number of rounds were not met, then the tournament was no longer officially sanctioned, would not have provided any rain points, and the tournament organizer should have reported that the tournament as did not occur. With the number of rounds being played, they should have been announced at or before the beginning of the first round, and once announced, it could not have been changed. A variable number of rounds could have also been announced with a specific criterion for ending the tournament. With the recommended number of rounds for Swiss tournaments, the following system should have been used for a premier tournament. It also could have been used for non-premier tournaments at the discretion of the tournament organizer. This information was included for reference purposes only. With four players, it consisted of two rounds. With five to eight players, it consisted of three rounds. With nine to sixteen players, it consisted of four rounds. With seventeen to thirty-two players, it consisted of five rounds. With thirty-three to sixty-four players, it consisted of six rounds. With sixty-five to one hundred twenty-eight players, it consisted of seven rounds. With 129 to 226 players, it consisted of 8 rounds. With 227 to 409 players, it consisted of 9 rounds. With 410 or more players, it consisted of 10 rounds. With invitation-only tournaments, they had additional requirement criteria for player participation. With the invitation list for Premier Tournaments, they were defined in the Transformers TCG Premier Event Tournament Policy. As long as tournament organizers offered a specific number of qualifying tournaments in advance to ensure that all players had a chance to qualify, they were allowed to hold invitation-only non-premier tournaments normally. When it came to the pairing algorithm, unless otherwise stated, tournaments were assumed to be using the Swiss system. With some tournaments, they could have proceeded with single elimination playoff rounds between the top even number of players after the Swiss rounds were over. If the tournament had a single elimination playoff, recommended pairing method was to pair the players by the final Swiss standings. For an 8-player playoff, the 1st place player played the 8th place player, the 2nd place player played the 7th place player, the 3rd place player played the 6th place player, and the 4th place player played the 5th place player. With the winners of the 1st, 8th placed, and 4th, 5th place matches played each other in the next round of the playoff. The winners of the 2nd, 7th placed, and 3rd, 6th place matches played each other in the next round of the playoff. The remaining players played in the last round of the playoff. With the 4-player playoff, the 1st place player played the 4th place player, and the 2nd place player played the 3rd place player. 
the remaining players played in the last round of the playoff. For 11 tournaments that had a single elimination booster draft playoff, it was recommended that only an 8-player playoff was run using the following method. Use a random method to seed players around the draft table and conducted the draft. After the draft had concluded, the player in seat 1 played the player in seat 5. The player in seat 2 played the player in seat 6. The player in seat 3 played the player in seat 7. And the player in seat 4 played the player in seat 8. The winners of the 1st, 5th seats and 3rd, 7th seats played each other in the next round of the playoff. The winners of the 2nd, 6th seats and the 4th, 8th seats played each other in the next round of the playoff. The remaining players played in the last round of the playoff. For Premier Tournaments, the playoff options just described were required and were not optional. For Premier Tournaments also included the Transformers TCG Invitationals. With the time limits for a tournament, they consisted of the following. The required minimum time limit for any given match was 40 minutes. For time limits, it was recommended that constructed and limited tournaments were 50 minutes. With Wave 5, 60 minutes was recommended. For single elimination playoff matches, there was no time limit. In addition to this, there were some additional time limits for limited tournaments. With sealed decks, players had 20 minutes for deck registration if a deck swap was to occur and 30 minutes for deck construction. With draft, players had 30 minutes for deck registration and construction. The final authority regarding time limits for the tournament was the head judge. However, any deviation from these recommendations would have been announced before and during tournament registration. With the premier tournaments, they might have had different time limits which could have been found in the tournament or tournament series fact sheet. With timed rounds, players could have had to wait for the officially tracked time to begin before they could begin their match. With the individual booster drafts, they had the following recommended time limits for each pack. With 7 cards remaining in the pack, the allotted time was 40 seconds. With 6 cards remaining in the pack, the allotted time was 35 seconds. With 5 cards remaining in the pack, the allotted time was 30 seconds. With 4 cards remaining in the pack, the allotted time was 25 seconds. With 3 cards remaining in the pack, the allotted time was 20 seconds. With 2 cards remaining in the pack, the allotted time was 10 seconds. With 1 card remaining in the pack, the allotted time was 5 seconds. With the review time after the first booster pack was done, it was 30 seconds. With each subsequent review period, it was increased by 15 seconds. So with that said, that's what you need to know about tournaments. With that taken care of, we can move on to clarifications, characters, and upgrades. If you liked this episode, feel free to give it a like, and if you want to stay up to date on any future episodes that we upload, then go ahead and subscribe. You can also support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash checkpointgain. See you in the next episode, and happy gaming.